I'm back. <laughs> good morning, my church family. It's so good to see you guys here today. If this is your first time or if you've come in the last couple of weeks, my name is Pete. I have the privilege and joy of serving as the lead pastor here. We're excited to have you joining us as we are kicking off this series, as you just heard my wife say, talking about a very heavy and sensitive topic of depression and anxiety, which I'll talk more about in just a moment. I also want to welcome those of you who are tuning in online, listening to this podcast or watching on YouTube. I hope this message is a blessing to you as well, and we look forward to you being here in person to be a part of the family that God has grown here at Life Church Buffalo. You know, I uh, missed the last couple of weeks, and I just want to say a huge shout out and thank you to my amazing wife, Kelly, who preached a powerful message last Sunday on fighting for unity in the church, taught us how to uh, handle conflict and offense in a biblical way. And the week before that, Pastor Beth, our children's and family pastor, also gave a phenomenal message on fighting for unity in the generations passing down a battle plan to our kids. And if you missed either of those messages, again, I would encourage you to check that out online on our podcast or on YouTube. Uh, I was in India for a couple of weeks, which is why I was out of the pulpit for a little bit. And uh, I just wanted to send uh, the regards of the pastors that we are supporting as a church because of your faithful generosity. These are a handful of the pastors that are receiving training and education. Men of God that have had their lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, who have answered the call to ministry and want to see the nation of India evangelized and discipled. And while the government of India and websites and Wikipedia will tell you that only 2% of the nation is Christian, the real statistics is that Christianity constitutes 15% of India's population and it's growing. It's the fastest growing religion in the nation and it's because of men of God like this who are being trained and discipled over a period of seven years. So we pay for 10 pastors to to be educated and trained over seven years, two years in evangelism where they're basically taught how to walk into a village and start preaching the gospel and winning people to Jesus. And then two years on church planning where they're trained on how to identify and raise up leaders within that church. And then three years on discipleship. And over the period of seven years, each of those guys is tasked and expected to plant five to seven churches each. So I was there to train them, and I told them right up front, I'm like, I am not qualified to teach or train any of you because I've never planted a church. You've all planted two, three, four churches, and I'm just humbled to be there. And, you know, I got to have this picture with them. It was just a precious time being with them and seeing the purity of their faith and the way that God is moving in their lives and how people are coming to Christ in unprecedented numbers. I'll be able to share more about that with you in weeks to come. But uh, because of the topic and the amount of material I have to get to today, I want to kind of move on. We're starting a new series today called Through the Pain. It's somewhat of a play on words uh, because when you struggle with anxiety and depression, it can often feel like you're looking through a window pane, P-A-N-E, at people and at lives that you wish you could have, but because of the mental and emotional pain that you're experiencing, pain, P-A-P-A-I-N, you feel locked up and trapped on the inside and unable to experience the joy that you think people on the outside are having. It's a very sensitive topic, and it's a timely message series as we're in a time of the year when, you know, seasonal affective disorder is at its peak. 
You know, seasonal depression is a very real thing in this part of the country, uh, suffers from it a lot. A lot of people in this area where the sun doesn't like to peek its head very often, and we have to deal with gray and gloomy skies. You know, our vitamin D levels drop, and people struggle with the blues and seasonal depression at this time of the year. I have seasonal affective disorder as well, so I can certainly relate and identify with that. But I want to give a disclaimer right up front as we begin the series. I am not a doctor, nor am I a counselor, and so I am not an expert on the topic of depression or anxiety. But I am a pastor, and I know Jesus, and I believe that with the help of the Holy Spirit and by God's grace, he wants to restore hope to people who have lost all hope and feel like there is nothing that you're ever going to experience but depression. God sent Jesus that you might have life and have it to the full. And anybody who's ever experienced depression knows that that is the last thing that they would ever use to describe their life. Abundant life, what is that? So I believe God heals all things and I believe he's gonna touch some people here today. I have empathy for people who struggle with depression because I have struggled with depression over the years. Not major clinical depression in the sense that some people lose their appetites, lose their will to live, they can't get out of bed, they can't function. I have, several years ago, I was seeing a counselor and was diagnosed with something called dysthemia, which is persistent mild depression. And I explain it to people this way, it's an unexplainable undercurrent of sadness that no matter what's happening in my life, even good things, people would look into my life and say, what do you have to be sad about? And that's just it. Depression doesn't make sense. It's not logical. It's not rational. I, I have a great family, wife, children, church is growing. Life is awesome. But a lot of times I'll enter these seasons where there's this unexplainable undercurrent of sadness that just affects and taints my view of the world and my outlook on life, my interactions with people. So you need to understand that pastors and Christians are not exempt from struggling and battling depression. The great 19th century preacher Charles Spurgeon battled intensely with severe depression. A couple years ago, you might remember the story of a pastor in California, 30 years old, beautiful wife, three incredible boys, took his life after struggling for years with mental illness and the darkness of depression. And even coming back from India nine days ago, I've shared with my wife and with my staff and several people that the last nine days, I have really been battling emotionally. I've been in a very low place. And anytime I get into a place like that, I start to self-evaluate and I think I've identified some things and from what I understand, it's not entirely uncommon for people who go to the mission field to experience somewhat of a spiritual and emotional letdown after coming back to the country. You couple that with the fact that it was sunny every single day in 87 degrees, and I come back here and it's gloomy and cloudy and gray skies. I think that has contributed to it. Not to mention the fact that jet lag is a very real thing. Ten and a half hour time difference. I've been back nine days. I'm still not back in this time zone. I'm all sorts of confused. I haven't slept through the night yet. I hit a wall every afternoon and I'm just, I'm struggling. And then you tack onto that the fact that on Monday I dove into my research to begin preparing for this message series and feeling the weight of this topic that so many people struggle with. And the empathy I feel for it, not just sympathy, but empathy because I've experienced it myself. 
has all contributed to me in the last week or so really struggling emotionally and kind of being in a, in a low place. Depression is a very broad topic. There are different types of depression, which I won't name all of them, but I want to start with somewhat of a general description or definition for depression. Depression is a mood disorder characterized by anhedonia, which is the inability to feel pleasure. Extreme sadness, poor concentration, sleep problems, loss of appetite, and feelings of guilt, helplessness, and hopelessness. I know many of you can relate with at least one of the symptoms in that list. An estimated 17.3 million adults in the U.S. have had at least one major depressive episode. It's highest amongst individuals ages 18 to 25. Get this, an estimated 3.2 million adolescents ages 12 to 17 have had at least one major depressive episode. And this age group represents the fastest growing segment of people who are battling depression. Teenagers, 12 to 17 years old. It's highest amongst females. Females are actually twice as likely to battle depression than men are. One in nine people are on some form of depression medication, and one in five people have been at some point on some form of depression medication. Depression meds, prescriptions are up 300% and climbing every year. And there's been a stigma on depression and mental illness in our society and our culture. You know, when, if you were to tell someone that you've got a cold or you've got a broken arm, like nobody looks at you weird. Nobody thinks there's anything wrong with you. And yet the moment someone says, I have depression or I have mental illness, our perspective or our outlook or attitude towards them changes. We think there's something wrong with them. And there's really not much of a difference between physical illness and mental illness. So listen to me, the stigma has to be broken in Jesus' name. We've got to stop attaching a stigma to people who struggle and battle with depression, anxiety, and mental illness. They're no different than someone who has a broken arm. The stigma's got to go. Listen, it's not a sin to be sick. It's not a sin to be sick. Your illness is not your identity. And the church has been silent for way too long on this topic. People outside the church come into the church looking for hope. And when they see a bunch of people pretending like they've got everything together and because we never talk about it in the church, they wrongly assume that everyone's got everything together and I don't fit in there because I don't. And you need to understand if that's you here today, look, we don't have everything together. You need to know that we're all just a bunch of broken and messed up people who all have a few screws loose. Okay, and Jesus is putting us back together one piece at a time. Some of us just got to the hospital a little bit before you did. Okay, and so you need to know right off the bat that it is okay to not be okay. That has to be our starting point. We have to be willing to admit that I'm not okay because if you don't start there, if you don't admit that you're not okay, then you can't get help, all right? It's okay to not be okay. So if you're new to this thing, if you're just kicking the tires on faith and on church trying to decide, you know, is this something I wanna add to my life, then you need to understand that we're all in the same boat and it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay to stay that way. 
Okay, God doesn't want you to stay broken. God sent Jesus to this world that you might have life and have it to the fullness. Okay, he wants you to experience abundant life. Why is depression becoming such an epidemic? There's certainly no single cause for depression. There's a lot of factors that contribute to it, such as brain chemistry and hormones and genetics. Other risk factors include low self-esteem, anxiety disorders, PTSD, physical or sexual abuse, drug or alcohol abuse. Certain prescription medications have depression as a side effect. Family history plays a role into all of this. Chronic diseases like cancer or diabetes or multiple sclerosis can contribute to depression. But listen, research is showing that depression is increasingly becoming a lifestyle disease. Stephen Alardi, author of a book called The Depression Cure, writes this. He says, we were never designed for the sedentary, indoor, socially isolated, fast food laden, sleep deprived, frenzied pace of modern life. Our current way of life is literally reshaping and rewiring our brains. And you couple that with our cell phone and social media usage, which is completely out of control. The identity issues that we're experiencing in our culture today where people don't know who they are and the narcissistic selfie culture that we live in where we're obsessed with self-image and comparing ourselves to everyone else. And it's the perfect storm. No wonder depression rates are skyrocketing. So what does the Bible have to say about it? More than you would think. It has a lot to say about it. There's actually a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations which is the prophet Jeremiah basically crying out all about his depression. In fact, I just want to show you a couple verses from Lamentations 3 when he writes, I have deprived myself of peace. I have forgotten what prosperity is. So I say, my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I remember them well, and my soul is downcast within me. Well, of course it is, Jeremiah, because you're forgetting everything that God has done for you, and you're focusing on and remembering all of the bad things in your life. You're ruminating on all of the negative things. There's another story that I want to talk about and spend the rest of our time focusing on today. It's another prophet named Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 18 and 19. We're going to spend our time there. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there if you want. We're going to be in chapter 19. But kind of for those of you that don't have a grasp on the biblical narrative, I want to give you a little bit of a backdrop to what has led to what we're about to read. In chapter 18, we see this epic story of this duel that takes place on Mount Carmel where Elijah, the prophet of God, challenges these 450 false prophets of Baal to a duel. You got to understand at this time in Israel's history, Israel had kind of plunged into moral decay and they had a completely wicked king named Ahab and an even more wicked wife uh, named Jezebel. Uh, Ahab was bad, but Jezebel made Ahab look like Barney the dinosaur, like she was an evil woman, all right? Very vindictive and manipulative, and she hated the people of God. She was trying to put to death all of the prophets of God, so all of the prophets were in hiding. 
And three years earlier, Elijah had predicted and prophesied a famine in the land which came to pass. And so they're blaming Elijah for everything that's happening in the, in the nation. They're hunting him, trying to find him. After three years, he finally says, you know what? It's time for me to present myself. Enough is enough. If your God is God, let's worship him. If my God is God, we'll worship him. So let's put two sacrifices and two altars. All right, you pray to your God. There's 850 prophets gathered. 400 prophets of Asherah and 450 prophets of Baal. And he tells the prophets of Baal, you pray to your God. All right, and I'll pray to my God. Whichever God answers by fire, that's the one true God. And he lets them go first. They're praying, nothing happens. They're crying out louder, nothing happens. They cut themselves, nothing happens. And he sort of taunts them. He says, well, maybe your God is sleeping. If you, if you pray louder, maybe he'll wake up and hear you, right? He's sort of taunting them a little bit. Of course, nothing happens. And then to prove a point, Elijah, when it's his turn, orders 12 bucketfuls of water to be poured onto the sacrifice, completely soaking it and drenching it so that in the natural, it would have been completely impossible for something that waterlogged to catch fire. And Elijah prays out to God and God sends fire from heaven and completely consumes the sacrifice. He then has the 450 prophets of Baal put to the sword. He prophesies an end to the drought and rain comes. It's this incredible victory where he sees God do these incredible, miraculous things. And right on the heels of that high, high, in chapter 19, we see Elijah sink to the lowest of lows. Let's pick it up in verse 1 of chapter 19. Now Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done and how he had killed the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow you ain't as dead as one of them, if I don't make your life like one of them. And verse three, Elijah was afraid and ran for his life, which is crazy to me because for the last three years, Elijah has experienced uninterrupted, nonstop protection, provision, the presence of God, the power of God. He just killed 450 false prophets and one grumpy woman threatens his life and he goes running for the hills because he's afraid? Like real? Come on. He goes from the highest of highs to the lowest of lows. And there's a lesson in that for some of us. Sometimes our lowest lows come right after some of our greatest victories and highest highs, which I know firsthand as a pastor. You can ask my wife. The hardest time for me every single week is Sunday night and all day Monday after we've had church on Sunday morning. We can have the greatest services on Sunday morning. We can see people give their lives to Jesus, testimonies coming about how their lives were changed and blessed. And Sunday night, all I'm doing is ruminating about how I don't think I preached a very good message. I wish I wouldn't have said that sentence like that, or I wish I wouldn't have done that. And I go into this super low low that takes me almost like 48 hours to recover, because what you don't realize sometimes, they say that preaching is almost like, one message is like working eight hours. The amount of energy that goes into preaching a message is like an eight-hour workday. I preach three times Sunday morning. They also say, I don't know how they figure this out, but experts say that there's anywhere from two to three adrenaline spikes every time a pastor preaches a sermon. 
So over the course of three sermons, I'm experiencing, you know, six to nine adrenaline rushes into my system that my body has to crash from. And I can almost set my watch to it. Three o'clock every Sunday afternoon, I hit a wall and I start to crash from my experiences here on Sunday morning. And I get into a really low, low. And my wife knows this and she knows to pray for me and she knows what I need. She knows I need some decompressed time and some alone time. She knows I need to recharge and being an introvert, I recharge through being alone, but I can't be too isolated. So my staff knows that they're, they're gonna be covering me in prayer. My wife knows to check in on me, you doing okay? And I'll, I'll be honest with her, but I know that my lowest of lows is always after the highest highs. And then it goes on to say, when he came to Beersheba in Judah, He left his servant there. He's depressed. He wants to be alone. You stay here while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came to a broom bush, sat down under it. And if you remember, a few months back last year, I preached a message called Watch Where You Sit. When it comes to the circumstances of our life, you can either sit under them or you can sit on them. You might want to take a look at that message again. But he sat down under the broom bush and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. There's three things I see here that Elijah did that I think we often make similar mistakes. And the first one is that we run ourselves into the ground. We run ourselves into the ground. Elijah, Elijah, afraid, ran for his life. And he couldn't have run any further if it was humanly possible. Do you know that Beersheba where he ran to was a hundred miles from where he was in Jezreel? He ran a hundred miles. That's four marathons. He ran to the southernmost border of Israel's kingdom to get away from this woman. And while we might not run a hundred miles, I know I ain't running a hundred miles, we do run ourselves into the ground. We burn the candle at both ends, trying to keep up with the Joneses, trying to pay the bills, One step forward, two steps back. Working two jobs. We run ourselves into the ground. Constantly on the go. We don't have time to cook or eat a decent meal with our family. So we grab McDonald's drive-through on the way to drop this kid off at practice again. We just run ourselves ragged. And then it says he left his servant there while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. His servant would have been his closest companion, the one that knew him better than anyone else, the one that Elijah likely confided in and talked to about things he was feeling and experiencing. But Elijah's depressed and he wants to be alone. He leaves his servant. The last thing Elijah needs in this emotional state is to be left alone. And the second thing that we do that leads to depression or something we do when we're depressed is that we isolate ourselves. We isolate ourselves. We internalize our problems and we shut people out because nobody understands what I'm going through. Nobody understands what I'm going through. We carry our problems alone. And this is tempting for me as a pastor, if I'm honest with you. Like I struggle wanting to shut people out because I can't share with you what I really struggle with because if I do, maybe you won't respect me and you're, so, you're, you're looking to me to, to know and live out the principles of God's word and live victoriously and, and so I, I have a temptation to shut people out 
which is why I, I fight against that. I intentionally pull people in, especially when I'm at my lowest of lows, so they can pray for me, so they can check in on me, because I don't trust myself when I'm in this place. I don't make any decisions on Monday mornings or Monday afternoons, because I don't trust myself. So don't isolate yourself. Isolation is a dangerous place to be because when you're alone with your thoughts, things can quickly spiral out of control. Don't be the only person you're listening to because your emotions will lie to you. That's why we talk all the time in this church about the importance of being in a life group, that life is better together. Because when you are struggling, when you get into these low places, you've got brothers and sisters in Christ who can surround you and love you and pray for you and encourage you and support you, which I've seen firsthand happen in my own group last year. One family had a particularly devastating experience and we got to surround them and love them and carry them through that time so they didn't sink into the depths of despair. We need each other. You guys, life groups is not a luxury. It's a necessity. It's a necessity. You need to be connected in community. Like, I'm going to go so far as to say this. If you're the only one that knows your secrets, you're in trouble. You won't got to tell everyone your secrets, but you need to tell somebody. And when you finally build up enough courage to say to someone in your small group, you know, nobody knows this, but nobody knows this and you share with them what you're struggling with, you'll be surprised and amazed when they respond like, oh, I thought I was the only one. You are not alone in your struggle. We need each other. Get in a group. Don't isolate yourselves. The third mistake that Elijah made, and we often make, is that we focus on the negative. So get this, in fear, Jezebel threatened his life. He fled for his life because he didn't want to die. Then he gets to the wilderness and prays that he might die. Do you see the irrationality of that? And, and that's what, depression is not rational. Like he didn't want to die, so he runs for his life, but then he gets to the wilderness and he prays, God, take my life. It doesn't make any sense. And fear leads to faulty thinking. And we focus on the negative. I've had enough, he said. Anybody ever said that before? Come on, every parent in the room should raise their hands. I've had enough. <laughs> Get to your rooms. <laughs> we just reach a breaking point sometimes. Had enough. I can't take anymore. I'm trying to pay the bills and now the water heater breaks. The furnace breaks. I had enough. Maybe it's your schedule. You're working, you're working, you're working. There's never enough time to spend with your family or do things around the house. Maybe it's a relationship issue. You're trying. You're giving this person so many chances. You're trying, you're trying. They deceive you again. I've had enough can't do it anymore. Maybe you're a single parent and you're just trying to juggle and keep everything afloat, doing your best, but you reach a point, I just, I've had enough. And we focus on the negative. Psychologists call it ruminating, which is a term that means it's just like a cow that chews its cud over and over and over and over again and then swallows it and then regurgitates it and chews on it some more. We have a tendency to chew on or dwell on negative thoughts and problems and replay them and rehearse them over and over and over again in our minds. It's ruminating. That's what Jeremiah was doing in Lamentations. And like Elijah, we can be led by our feelings and focus on the negative and, and repeat things in our minds. Like, I hate my life. 
I'm never going to get into that college. I hate my job. I hate my boss. I'm a terrible mom. I'm a terrible dad. I'm always going to struggle. I'm never going to be happy. Nobody loves me. Always going to be broke. Nobody cares. What's the point of all this? You know what? Maybe I should just go ahead and end it all. And listen to me, I believe that as I was preparing this message and I got to this point, I believe the Holy Spirit told me that there were going to be some people in this room who came to church today entertaining thoughts of ending it all. Listen to me, suicide is a permanent, irreversible attempt to solve a temporary problem. It might seem all-encompassing right now. It might seem like nobody cares, but we care. God loves you. God's got a plan for your life. You don't have to die to end your pain. Okay, you need to know that. Too many people are resorting to suicide thinking it's their only way out. 800,000 people a year around the world end their life by suicide. 48,000 people a year in the U.S. alone. That's one every 11 minutes. 129 people a day say there's nothing worth living for anymore. It's twice the murder rate. It's the number two killer of people ages 10 to 34, second only to unintentional injuries. We cannot be silent about this anymore. So listen to me, if you or anybody you know is struggling with suicidal thoughts or ideologies, I want to encourage you to have them or have you call 1-800-273-TALK, 8255. That's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Do not isolate yourselves. Do not focus on the negative. Reach out. There are trained professional counselors ready to talk you through what you're experiencing, ready to talk you off of the ledge. There is more worth living for, I promise you. I promise you, don't throw in the towel. Don't give up. You are loved. Don't end it all. Don't be led by your feelings because your feelings will lie to you. In our culture, we're all about feelings. Well, I feel this and I feel that. And well, I just feel this. Your feelings are not really an accurate indicator of what is true, of what is real. We tell our boys that all the time. Feelings and facts don't always mean the same thing. Jesus said you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Your feelings aren't going to set you free. When you know Jesus and the truth that he's got a plan and a purpose for your life, that will set you free. So we've got to intentionally shift our focus away from the negative thoughts that are trying to dominate our thinking to the positive, powerful promises of God's word. Your life will move in the direction of your strongest thoughts. We talked about that in the Keep the Chain series earlier this year. You can actually decide and control what your mind thinks about. So when these negative thoughts are, are, are circling in your mind, you've got to intentionally say, no, I'm going to focus on what God's word says. Paul says it this way in Philippians 4, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about these things. Don't think about all the bad stuff. Don't think about the negative things because your life will move in that direction if you, if you are thinking about that. But when you think about things that are true and lovely and right and noble and pure, your life will begin moving in that direction and the cloud of depression will lift. We've got to fix our focus. 
We've got to fix our focus because when we are focused on the negative, that's when we forget God. You know, every step of the way in Elijah's story, in every single situation, God had been present, God had provided, God had protected. But Elijah is so depressed and so low and so being led by his feelings, he forgets everything that God had done, which is crazy to me because his very name should have been a reminder to him of the nearness of God. Elijah's name is a compound of three different words, El, I, and Jah. El is short for Elohim, which is God. I is I or mine. Jah is short for Yahweh, which was the name of God. Elijah's name literally means my God is Yahweh. My God is Yahweh. But devout believers back then and even today in some parts of the world, followers of Judaism will not even speak the full name of Yahweh out loud. They think it's too holy to say it in its entirety. When they write it, they will omit the vowels. And when they speak it, it'll be Yah. My God is Yah. My God is Yah. My God is my breath is literally what his name means. My God is my source. My God is my sustainer. My God is my provider. My God is my protector. My God is my healer. My God is Yahweh. My God is my breath. He's as close to you as your breath. And despite the fact that his name should have reminded him that God is as close to him as his breath was, he forgot it all. My God is my breath which is interesting because when you look at anxiety and people who have panic attacks and anxiety disorders, which we're gonna talk about anxiety next week, but one of the symptoms of that, what do they say? It's a shortness of breath. They can't catch their breath. Their heart starts to race, they panic, and they can't catch their breath. And when we face our fears while forgetting about God, we lose our breath. We can't catch our breath. My God is my breath. You need to remember in those moments that God is as close to you as your breath. He's close. He's near. Look at what happens next. He lays down under the broom bush and falls asleep in verse five. All at once, the angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and check this out. He laid down again. And that's a word from the Lord for some of you here today. Listen, I'm serious. Like when you are running yourself into the ground, don't underestimate the power of some rest and like replenishment. He took a nap, he got up and ate, and took another nap. That's my plans after church this morning, guys. Like I'm gonna go and eat me a good meal, I'm gonna go home and take a nap, and then I'm gonna get up and eat again and take another nap. Amen, glory to God. Like, so you have my permission to cancel whatever plans you had this afternoon to go home and take a nap in the Father, name of the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Like, seriously, we gotta, like, regain the power of the Sabbath. Some of you are depressed because you've not given your body or your brain the opportunity to reset like it does when we give it a day of rest. Because we're constantly on the go, 24-7, and listen, the Sabbath is not just coming to church on Sunday. The Sabbath is one day in seven where you consecrate yourself to God and you cease from your labors. You enjoy your family. You take a nap. You go for a walk. You do something that brings joy. But it belongs to God. And we've got to give our, bo our bodies and our brains function better when we give it the rest that God created and designed us to have and need. 
All right, enough of that. Verse 7. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, Get up and eat, for the journey's too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night. And I've just got to say, that had to be some supernatural bread to sustain him for a 40-day journey on foot. What? Come on. Verse 11, the Lord said, Go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. But after the fire came a gentle whisper. You know, I don't know if that's where the band got its name from, but earth, wind, and fire, and God was not in any of it. (laughs) He was not in the spectacular. He was not in the extraordinary demonstrations of power. He was in the ordinary. He was in the whisper. He was in the breath. You know, at this time, I want to go ahead and invite my wife, Kelly, up to the stage to help me with a little illustration I want to do for you here today. You know, not only is Kelly my best friend, partner in life, but she's also the one that has prayed for me and has helped battle with me and fight for me during my different bouts of depression. And so, Kelly, I want you to kind of just humor me a little bit and pretend like you're fearful or anxious or depressed. (laughs) You know, when we are overwhelmed by anxiety or in a pit of despair and depression, I think sometimes we wish... God would speak to us in the spectacular. Why does he whisper? Why, if he wants us to know him and trust him and experience him, it would be really easy for us. God, would you just reveal yourself to me? And we want some grandiose, spectacular experience. Why does he whisper though? He whispers because he's close. Do you see that? See, our enemy, the devil, shouts his lies at us. Like, you're never going to be good enough. You don't have what it takes. Nobody loves you. You're always going to be like this. Nobody would care if you took your life. Go ahead and end it all. The enemy shouts his lies at us from all different directions. But God whispers because he's close. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you to the very end of the age. I have a plan for your life. You are my child. You are my son. You are my daughter. And I have loved you with an everlasting love. And no one and nothing can take you from me. Nothing can separate you from my love. He whispers because he's close. Amen, church. Thank you, honey. He whispers because he's close. You know, the psalmist said in Psalm 34, 18, that the Lord is close to the brokenhearted and saves those who are depressed, who are crushed in spirit. 
That's why he whispers, because he's close. The problem, though, for some of us who haven't learned how to hear his voice is we don't, we don't hear his voice because we've not trained ourselves to know what his voice sounds like. We've not developed the habit and the discipline of giving him the first of our day and sitting in a quiet space to open up his word and learn what his voice sounds like when we read the pages of those scriptures. It says, be still, comma, and know that I am God. Be still, comma, and know that I am God. You can't know that he is God until you've been still enough to let him reveal himself to you. To hear God's voice, you've got to turn down the world's volume. There's too much noise coming at us. We were never designed or created to have the world's information superhighway buzzing in our back pocket every two seconds. You know, these phones have an, an incredible feature on them. It's like this. Oh my gosh. Off. We turn it off and we open up God's word and we let him speak to us. But to hear his voice, you've got to turn down the world's volume. You know, to recap the rest of the story, I would encourage you when you get home to read the rest of 1 Kings 19. But Elijah pours out his heart to God. And despite the fact that much of what he tells God isn't true and it's actually just plain wrong, God doesn't rebuke him. He doesn't say, where is your faith, Elijah? He was complaining. He was in a self-loathing mindset. He's like, all the prophets are dead. Now they're trying to kill me too. And we learn later that God says, I've still reserved 7,000 who haven't bowed their knee to Baal. But he pours out his heart to God. God doesn't rebuke him. And I just want to tell you, if you struggle with depression, would you just pour your heart out to God? Like, let him have it. Tell him everything you're feeling. Get it off your chest. The good, the bad, the ugly. Don't worry about getting all the words right or thinking you're going to offend God. He knows anyway. So pour out your heart to him. And then he gives Elijah some marching orders. And he says to him, go back the way you came. And as soon as I read that, I was struck because of how similar it sounds to what Jesus told the church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. And he says, I've got this one thing against you. You have forsaken your first love. Repent and go back and do the things you did at first. Repent means to turn around and go back. God told Elijah, go back the way you came. Jesus tells us, go back and do the things you did at first. Sometimes the greatest antidote or medication for our depression is to go back and do the things that we were doing when life was full and purposeful and our relationship with God was solid. And you'll be amazed when you start doing those things. Right feelings follow right actions. Go back and do the things you did at first and you'll be amazed at how the depression starts to lift. Go back the way you came. And then he says, you're going to go and anoint this king over here, and you're going to anoint that king over there, and then you're going to meet a guy named Elisha, who's going to be your protege and your successor as prophet to the people of God. He gave him an assignment. Listen to me. Letting God give you a new purpose and direction for your life can be one of the most powerful and effective medications for depression. I'm convinced that it is the most powerful. I don't know anything that brings more meaning to your life than knowing that God's got an assignment for you, that you were made on purpose for a purpose, that God has a plan and a purpose for your life to make a difference in other people's life. 
let God give you a new assignment. Discover your purpose. We talk about it all the time, and that's why we do Growth Path. It's not just another church program, okay? It's not just to help build the church building. It's to build the church people. It's to put you on a pathway where you can begin to discover the plans that God has for you. We can't answer what God's plan for your life is, but we can help steer you and put you on a pathway where as you journey with God, you begin to discover, well, maybe this is, this is the gift that God gave me and why did he gave that gift to you for a purpose, for a special assignment to do the works that he's prepared in advance for you to do. That's what growth path is to help you discover your assignment and live on purpose. Live for the purpose that God placed you here. So listen, if you're struggling with depression, know number one, that it's okay to not be okay. Stop running yourself into the ground, get some rest, be restored, eat healthy, get healthy physically, get out, get active, get some replenishment, take a nap, all right? Don't isolate yourself. Talk to someone. Don't shut people out. Get into a group. Go to see a doctor. Get on medication if you have to. Don't isolate yourself. And don't focus on the negative. Remember God's faithfulness throughout your years and his nearness, that he's as close to you as your breath. And pour out your heart to him. Let him hear it. And return to your first love by doing the things you did at first and let him give you a new assignment. You have a purpose. God has a plan for your life. I want to close with this verse from Matthew chapter 11 when Jesus said this, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. Come to me, all you who are depressed, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Let me pray for you this morning. God, I pray that verse over your people this morning. God, that you would bring rest, that you would restore hope, that you would renew our souls when we have been beat down and battered by depression, that we have, there are some people here this morning that desperately want to believe that what I'm saying is true and you're holding on to the last thread from the rope that is your life, desperately clinging on. And this morning, I simply pray that the Holy Spirit and the light of his love, the revelation of his truth would penetrate and dispel the darkness and you'd be able to experience the love of your heavenly Father who calls you by name. You are my son, you are my daughter, and I love you. You are mine. God, I pray that you would break the power of depression and darkness in Jesus' name. When you walked into the temple after you came out of the wilderness and you announced your arrival by reading from Isaiah, you said, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor and to set at liberty those who are captive. And I just feel that anointing on me this morning to set at liberty, to declare the freedom of the Lord over your life. Lord, that your joy would be our strength. God, that you would show us the things that we can do in the natural. 
to help our bodies and brains begin to function in the way that you designed and created them to, God, that we wouldn't think we could cheat your spiritual laws, that, Lord, that we would learn how to rest and honor the Sabbath. But, Lord, you are restoring, you are literally resurrecting people from the dead as I speak in this moment. And for those of you that have been contemplating suicide, the devil is a liar. You are loved. You are loved by God. You are loved by us. You have a plan and a purpose for your life. And together we want to help you discover it. Don't give up. Don't give up. Don't give up. Jesus, I thank you for the work that you're doing in people's hearts. And God, I pray that what you started here today, you'd be faithful to complete and that you'd give people the courage to leave this place and take a next step, to not fall back, to not ruminate, but to take a step and do the next right thing. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for the empty tomb. We can't experience the power of the resurrection without first experiencing a death. And for some people, they feel like they've been walking around like a walking dead person. But today, by the authority of the spoken word of God, the shed blood of Jesus Christ and the anointing of the Holy Spirit, I say to you, come alive. Come alive. Jesus, we love you and I pray that you'd help us to leave this place as living epistles like Paul said walking letters that will be read by all men, that people will read our lives. They will look at us and realize that something has shifted, that we would have the hope of glory living inside of us. It's the hope for other people's glory that when they who are struggling in darkness would see the light inside of us and would come to us and say, what is the secret? Why are you so happy? How did you come out of that pit? And we'll have the opportunity to say, let me tell you how. Jesus, Jesus. I declare that Western New York is no longer going to be referred to as a spiritual graveyard or as a place of darkness. But Lord, you are doing a new thing and we are your people going to carry it out and share the hope of glory, the message of the gospel, the love of Jesus Christ with our friends, our family members, our neighbors, our coworkers and our classmates. In Jesus' name we pray. And everyone said, amen and amen.